Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 15, and 16. We'll finish the book up tonight. Now, remember, I'm not here next week. So if you all come, you can all come um, and whatever, but I'm not going to be here. So, yeah, we'll be back. We'll be back in two weeks and picking up with Corinthians. We're actually on schedule, I think. So that's a pretty surprising thing. We're not done with this night yet. Yeah, yeah we're not yeah. done yet. So we'll get there. But so far, before the night started, we're on schedule. So that's a good thing. So let's open in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this night. And uh, for being here, thank you for this word that we're able to study. Open our hearts, minds, give us insight. Pray that your spirit would teach us that we may know. And um, Father, it's not just enough to know a bunch of more facts, but we want to know it so that it makes a difference and an impact on our lives and alters the way we think and act and live. And we just thank you for that opportunity and for the spirit that teaches us in Christ's name. Amen. Um, before we get into 1 Corinthians 15, any questions at all on the whole subject of the spiritual gifts area? I sort of hurried through the last part of that. So, you know, I thought it might be a good idea to just uh, maybe discuss this uh, topic a little bit before we move on, you know, in case there's something that you all are thinking about or would like to ask questions on um, in this whole area. Um, one of the things I did, I did mention, um, of course, when, when you talk about spiritual gifts, the whole issue of tongues just rears its head, it seems, as one of the major issues. And I sort of glossed over this whole concept of, you know, how the tongues, um, at least historically in the church, faded away. And, uh, what, and I, I want to just maybe spend a few more minutes just talking about that, and maybe it'll spark some more questions in your mind. But as you look at the book of Acts, all right, where tongues first popped up, um, it popped up in Acts 2. And remember, Acts 2 was the day of Pentecost. And, of course, what happened on the day of Pentecost is the Holy Spirit came. Remember, Christ told them to tarry in the upper room until the Spirit came. And so they were there tarrying and waiting for the Spirit. All right. So in Acts 2, at least, on the day of Pentecost, um, you see tongues coming upon the early church. They spoke in, and notice what it said. What do they speak in? No language. Languages, not gobbledygook. Because the people there said, how is it that we understand this in our own dialecta? The Greek word there is dialecta. We get dialect from it. Um so they understood what these people were saying, okay? So these are this is not gobbledygook, and that's the that's one of the. If you don't get anything out of it, get something, get this out. Tongues is a known language; it's not gobbledygook, and it's something that people can understand and, and interpret, okay? So they had it, and how did they get it? Of course, well in Acts two, the Holy Spirit came by them tearing, right? Now one of the one of the things that we are told. Um, by the charismatic circles nowadays is that, well, you know, if, you, if you've not spoken in tongues, you know, you just need to tarry on the Spirit. You need to wait for the Spirit, okay? Well, that's what they did in Acts 2. They waited for the coming of the Spirit to empower them 
in their ministry. And the Holy Spirit, of course, came on the day of Pentecost. Then when's the next time? Anybody know when the next time tongues shows up? Close. That's actually the that's actually one farther. Chapter eight. And what do you have in Acts eight? What's the account in Acts eight? That's the Samaritans, right? No, that's Acts nineteen. Here, yeah, Acts eight. Yeah, Acts 8 is the whole account of Simon Bar-Jesus and the Samaritans. All right. So in Acts 8, in fact, let's do this. Let's write a little little thing out here. In Acts 2, who got the Holy Spirit? Who who are the ones that got the Holy Spirit? The 120, and they were all what? Jews. All right. They were all Jewish believers. Okay. All 120 of them. And by the way, who was one of the 120 that got the gift? Well, Peter did, but who else? For all of our recovering Catholic whatever friends. Mary. Mary did. She was on the upper room too. All right. And they this this was the result. They they were tear they tearing, tearing, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Then in Acts 8, who's the ones? Remember, remember the account in Acts 8. You have Philip that goes up to Samaria. Right, and he's evangelizing, and the Samaritans believe. One of them being Simon Bar Jesus there, who believes the magician, and uh, Peter comes up, of course, to see what's going on, and uh, that's when he has the confrontation with uh, Simon Bar Jesus. But what happened when Peter laid hands on the Samaritan believers? They got filled with the Spirit. Samaritan. They got filled with the Spirit and they spoke in tongues. All right. That's why I didn't really, um, I didn't say that because um, did it really say that they spoke in tongues? Yes. They had the manifestation. Yes. Um, and so here you got the, the people who got it were Samaritans. And how did they get it? Okay. Well, it was subsequent to salvation. Okay. I'm going to put this down. Subsequent to salvation, right? They, they actually were saved, were baptized, were joined the church, and they didn't get the Holy Spirit until Peter shows up. All right. And also, how what was the act that Peter did for them to get it? It was laying on of hands okay, by the apostle. All right. So the, the point we're going to try to make we're going to make out of this as you look down through this is we are told today that the way you receive the gift of tongues and everything is you tarry for the spirit. Well, they didn't tarry for anything. All right. Or some say, well, you know, it's you got to be have. have People lay hands on you. Well, that's good. That was good for them. But these people didn't have hands laid on them. And they got the Holy Spirit. Okay. And, of course, the next time you have this is what? No. Nope. Close. No. Acts 19 is the third one. Ten. It's got to be between nine and ten, you know, between eight and ten. Huh? If you just keep asking numbers, you're going to hit one, right? <laughs> Acts 10, and who was there? Who who received the Holy Spirit there in spoken tongues? Gentiles, Cornelius, right? So here you got Gentiles. Okay. And how did he get tongues? 
immediately upon salvation, right? Immediately as he believed, he spoke in tongues. So in this case, it was immediate um, to his salvation. Immediate to salvation. There was no time gap in between him believing and receiving the gift of tongues. All right. Then the next one is Acts 19, right? And who's who in Acts 19, who got the gift of the Holy Spirit? And they were Old Testament believers, all right? Old Testament saints, okay? They were not Christians yet, right? Because they did not know about Christ yet, but they were certainly believers. They were, if they would have died, where would they have gone? Heaven, all right. So they were, they were saved in that sense, but they were not saved in the sense of believing the gospel because they had not heard about Christ or the gospel. And how, how did they receive the Holy Spirit? I think it was laying hands, if I remember correctly. Paul laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, of hands by Paul. Okay. Now the the point to make in all of this, and and this is important to understand. The point to make in all of this is that what is the normative way in which someone receives the gift of the Spirit to speak in tongues? Well, there isn't one, right? There's several different ways that it happened. And sometimes it was tearing, sometimes it was laying out of hands, sometimes there was a period between your salvation and the gift of the Spirit, other times it was immediate. There is no pattern. So when someone tries to tell you that there's a pattern, like you got to wait and wait and wait, that, that doesn't fit here. Okay. The second thing you got to understand, and, and this, this this goes outside when you sit back and you think about this. What is what was God doing in giving these people this sign? What was God trying to do? Okay, and you need to ask that. What was God trying to do? Well, in the first sense, this one here, why did God have them speak in tongues? Well, it was a sign of judgment. Remember, we talked about that. If you're not going to listen to me in the words you can understand, I'm going to talk to you in words you can't. And so it was a judgment. It was a judgment. And that's what Paul, excuse me, picks up on the beginning in Acts, and not Acts, but in 1 Corinthians 14, about it's a, it's a judgment. It's a sign to the Jews. Excuse me. And so it's a sign. But here's the thing. What you got to put yourself in the Jewish shoes. You're a Jew back in those days. All right. And how did you view people that were not Jews? Scum. They're fodder for hell. They're worse than vermin. You know, God created them to fuel the fires of hell. And isn't it wonderful that we're not a Gentile? In fact, the average Pharisee, when he got up, said, I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a tax collector, and I'm not a woman. Yeah, that'll let you know how they felt there. All right. But they were they were bigoted. You know, they make Archie Bunker look like a kitten. All right. These guys were bigoted beyond belief. All right. So in the first sense, God gives the Jewish people a sign, the gift of the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. All right, it was a very visible manifestation. And then what happens with the Samaritans? 
what happens to them? They get the same gift. Now, if you were a Jew, what would you think? Why would God do that to them? Right? Because the Samaritans, I mean, they were lower than the Gentiles because they were half-breeds. They were traitors to the Jewish state. Why would God give them this gift? And then, horror of horrors, what happens in Acts 10? The Gentiles get the same thing, right? And so what do you think God is trying to tell them? There is no difference. Everybody's the same. What would have happened, theoretically, had the Jews got this gift and nobody else did? Yeah, there's different, you know, there's us and then there's, look what happens in your average charismatic circles today. There's the people who speak in tongues, the people who don't, and the people who are the anointed, then the people who are, I guess Ben Hinn's on his third or fourth book, the double, triple anointing or whatever it is. Um, you got different levels. That's, that's what Christ and that's what God was eliminating with this. Everybody got the same thing. And then the Old Testament saints got the same gift. What is Christ, what is God um, visibly doing? He's showing that everybody who is a believer is the same in the body of Christ. There are no differences. And in fact, if you want to understand, well, where'd you pull this at, Alan? Where'd you get this? Read Acts chapter 15, because what did Peter say at the Jerusalem council when they were arguing about this? Remember, the, what was the Jerusalem council all about? Well, it was all about saying, well, Peter, what are you doing hanging around with the Gentiles of all things? I mean, this is a big, you got to understand how big a deal this was in the early church. The idea that Jews and Gentiles were equivalent was something God had to beat into the brains of the Jews because they weren't going to get it otherwise. They weren't going to get it. And Peter says, look, I can't, all I know is when I taught, when I told Cornelius, to, he spoke in tongues just like we did. Remember that when he said in Acts? He spoke just like we did. Don't blame me. <laughs> That's not my fault. I didn't come up with this. Blame God. He's the one that gave them the same sign. And that was used by the Holy Spirit to, to melt the early church into one group. No matter where you came from, whether you were a Jew, a Samaritan, a Gentile, or an Old Testament saint. And if you want to think about it, think about this. You shall be witnessing to me in Jerusalem, right? In Judea and Samaria and the othermost part of the earth, right? God is bringing everything into one group, one family. And the purpose of tongues was to do that. Twofold. One, it was a judgment on Israel. Secondly, it was God beating into their heads this concept of equality in the church. Because that is not something that the Jews would have gotten otherwise. They wouldn't have gotten it. And even when this happened, there were still Jews that struggled with this. Wanting to bring on some of the legal restrictions of the law. Remember Paul in Galatians 3? You, you begun in the spirit. Are you now perfected by the flesh? When I came to you, how did you believe? Did you believe by faith or works? Well, faith. All right, then why are you working for it now? 
And what had happened is, of course, if you understand Paul's missionary journeys, after he left the town, the Judaizers came in. And what did they teach? Well, you're saved by the law and grace. You know, they wanted to bring that law business in. They just and God had to he had to beat it out of them. And this is one of the ways, visible ways he did this. And what you see historically, if you go back and study history, you know, I'm not making it up. You can do this yourself. But as you study history, you see tongues do this. And by literally, basically, by about 60 A.D., they're not mentioned anywhere. You go read all the early church fathers. You read uh, Polycarp, you read Irenaeus, you read uh, Clement of Alexandria, you read all of these guys. They don't talk at all about tongues. It's like it's not, it's not even mentioned. Now, if it was something normative for the church, it was nothing necessary for spiritual life, what would you have expected to hear? Something. It's not mentioned. It's not there. All right? Have you ever heard of teaching on I don't know where it's from. Um, someone said that um, when people speak in tongues, that every, everyone has the gift because it's the voice of your spirit. Have you ever heard of teaching that? No, that's something that people pull out of thin air. Okay. All right. Um, the thing goes back to, is there any place in the Bible where it says, I have a private spirit language? No. It's not there. I think so. I don't know who teaching, but I think uh, their, their argument was your spirit has a voice. They, they, were, they were saying that you know, when people are endued with the spirit or when these people can fill with the spirit, it was actually their spirit's ability to sound words, and that's why it's not understandable. Like well, the problem is when you go to Acts 2 and all these, these were known languages. That's the problem. The problem is it always goes back to that. This was known language. This was not. Yeah. But each, all nations, people, they're coming to there. Understood their own language. They understood their own language. Yeah. But different kinds of people, they don't understand it. But when. Apostles talking my country language, they understand. Yeah. That's why they, they show them this is a God given to powerful. Yeah. That's yeah. why they're talking about the joy. Yeah, because what happened at Pentecost is that's one of the major feast days in Israel. And so you had people from all over the Roman Empire coming into the into that place. And all of a sudden here they're finding their own language being spoken. Miraculously, that drew them to the preaching of the gospel by Peter on the day of Pentecost, where he had 3,000 people converted. And then you have 5,000 later on. It was a language that they understood. There is no evidence, zero evidence in the Bible of any language that's a private prayer language or unintelligible to us that we speak. It's not there. You have to read between the white spaces to put it in. I'm sorry. You know, when they receive the, the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost, how does that connect with uh, the confounding of the, the languages and the power of battle? 
Um, I don't think it, it, it's, it, there's a connection there. Okay. I think what it is, it was, it was a sign of judgment on Israel. The context of, um, remember we looked at Isaiah. The context there was God spoke all day long to a stiff necked and rebellious people. And remember Isaiah, the guy preached and preached and preached and what did Israel do? They ignored him. And God finally said, okay, look, you know, I'm going to stop your ears up and I'm going to close your eyes. And I'm going to make you dull so that you can't hear and you can't believe and you can't be converted. In other words, because you will not, I'm going to make it that you cannot. They said, wait a minute, I thought God, God always, no. Look at, remember Noah, right? He preached for 120 years. What happened one day? God said, you know, time's up. Now, you might live another seven days or whatever before you drown, but your time was up. There was no salvation after that. And it was a sign of judgment. And that's the context behind it. And God is telling Israel, I'm going to speak in a language you can't understand. All right. And that's that's what happened here. That was a, it was a sign of judgment. And you get that from understanding what it says in Joel, understanding what it says in Isaiah and Acts and First Corinthians 14. You put that together and that gives you that understanding of what's going on. See, yeah, Joel, too, I think it is. But what we've done is we've made and what has happened, you got to understand here. OK. The, 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 if there's nothing when you when you look at this, this topic and other topics like this, you cannot derive your theology from your experiences. That's bad. <laughs> Because you could all take LSD and come up with some pretty wild theology, right? You could take drugs and come up with pretty wild theology. The Bible does not base your theology on your emotions, on your feelings, or on your experiences. What is it based on? The Word of God and truth. That's where you derive your theology. And one of the difficulties you have with some of the people who, who are into this movement, into tongues, they say, but I've had my experience. And it's like, that doesn't mean anything. Your experience is irrelevant. What matters is truth. And Peter said that. Remember in Second Peter, he says, you know, we were with Christ in the Holy Mount. What was that? Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, John, and James, right? They went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And what happened? Christ was transformed into what appeared to be his glorified body. And they were awed, and God spoke from heaven. And Peter said, you know, that was really wild. That was an experience. But you know what's better than that? A sure word of prophecy is a lot better than that experience. The word, In fact, what he's saying, and if you understand Second Peter, he's saying it's better to have the word of God than all the experiences in the world. Because experiences, by definition, are subjective, right? They're subjective. We could all go to a restaurant and we walk away with 12 different experiences, but we ate the same food. We were in the same spot. Yeah, but we'd all have 12 different impressions. Some of us would think that's the greatest escargot we ever ate. Others think it's gross snails, right? But we all would have a different experience. Experiences are deceptive. And that's one of the things that Satan's very good at doing. He's very good at deceiving us through the experience. And you always need to make sure that your experiences, whatever you have, are validated by the truth of the word of God and not the other way around. You can't say, well, I've had this experience. I need to find some verse to back it up. 
you know, because now you've got problems because your experiences can deceive you. Your feelings, your emotions are very, you're a fallen, right? You're fallen, you're a fallen person. You can't think right. You can't. Are you saying there's no valid, I mean, there is no respected valid theological argument for problems today? No. Because what you, you you've shown us the patterns in the, in the Bible. You yes. You talked about the incidents of tongues. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're, we've been looking at Acts and we've been looking at Corinthians. Corinthians. And it's not didactic. It's historical for the most part. Corinthians is didactic. Acts is historical. Okay. You can't make, if, if all I had was the historical argument, that's that's weak. Okay. I also have a didactic argument as well. What you use there was the historical argument. These, these are, these are things, yeah, this is, when someone says, you gotta tarry, well, a lot of people didn't. When someone says you gotta lay on time, well, a lot of them didn't. It's all different. But, but again, you don't wanna form, you're right, you don't wanna form your theology from Acts. But when Paul spoke of, of how the prop, the, of the proper way to speak in tongues and, and to conduct yourself. That's in didactic. That's didactic, but he didn't precisely say that tongues no longer ha has already ceased. And the reason he didn't, because at the time he wrote Corinthians, that was still a valid gift. There was still a valid miraculous component to it. But is it possible? And I'm, and I'm not teaching, talking. No, I, I know where you're coming. I don't want to, don't want to under, underestimate God, but. In, in God's timing, and lots of the tongues movement can't happen in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that was a poor sign of, of the end times where that God's going to pour out his spirit and he's going to give us some signs? Because yeah. if you think about the God's timing is a lot different than that. Right. Israel was established in 47, mm -hmm. and everybody, think, everybody thought something was going to happen soon. But here yeah. we are 60 years later, nothing's, nothing's happened yet. I mean, is it possible that God comes and goes, and, and the purpose of tongues, the genuine tongue, if it was genuine during that decade, was to point okay. to the, the Holy Spirit? And I, I think if you just look, and that's a that's a very valid question, and in fact, that the third wave movement in the church, I don't know if you've ever heard of the third wave, all right? They actually believe that. The third wave or the latter rain um, group believes exactly that. Well... Yeah, but now the fact that it's shown up again shows that we're at the end of the time. It's God pouring his spirit out again, things like that. The answer to that is very simple. Who are the people speaking in tongues? And is it the same tongues gift that you see in the, Old Te in the New Testament? The answer to the latter is no, it is not the same, right? It is not. Look at Just look at the rules that Paul lays down in, in 1 Corinthians 14. Every one of those rules is is violated by the current modern tongues movement. There's usually no interpreter. There's there's no known language um, that any that anybody that any linguist on the planet can discern. Um, it's done by women. They're not supposed to do it. It's a cacophony. Everybody's doing it at once. It's not one at a time. And and remember, Paul says if you do it, it has to be one at a time. And somebody needs to interpret what is being said. That's violated. And who are the people that are getting it? Some of the most ungodly believers on the planet are the ones that are promulgating this. And they're the same ones that deny the deity of Christ. And they deny the, the, the sinfulness of man. They deny the divinity of Christ. I'm not making this stuff up. You can go read it yourself. 
They are the same ones that are, in all categories, heretics. Kenneth Copeland is not going to heaven. He denies the deity of Christ. He said so. He said, I don't believe God. Jesus is God. You think Benny Hinn's going to heaven? He doesn't even believe that. He thinks there's nine members in the Trinity. You know, I, it's it's the theological aber, aberration people that are into this, not the ones that are biblically solid people. I'm sorry. I'm, now, I'm ranting. If you, if you start speaking in the tongue, that means... We suppose we'll be able to understand, say all of us in here. I would be speaking in a known language that someone could interpret. Yes, someone in here would be able to interpret. Yes, because what Paul is making the point is what good does it do me to stand up and speak in some language that not any of you in here can understand? So, so that I'm talking to the air. All of us have to understand. Just one would be able to interpret it so all of us could understand. Well, let's say, let's say I knew Korean, which I don't, but I knew Korean and E and See, he got up and preached the sermon in Korean, and I would interpret it for you. That would, that would be valid. But if he's just up preaching in, 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 in Korean, we're all going to be looking at one another like saying, you know, how long is this guy going to go on? When can we get out of here? Because I have no idea what he's talking about. He could be saying some of the most profound theological statements ever said. I have no idea what he says. But, but then couldn't it be a stage thing? Like I tell you, I went to a church, and they started speaking in tongues. But one lady started speaking in tongues. And another lady interpreted. How do you know that? How do you know that it was the correct interpretation? I, I don't. That's what I'm saying. Could it be a stage thing? It is. It's a stage thing. You know. Today, today, it's it's just it's I today it's fake. I, I I'm sorry. I believe that. I do not believe it's valid. Okay. And remember what we said. We said of the gift of tongues in the New Testament, right? You had a miraculous component, right? Which is the the what you see here. Then you had just the Ability for people, the, the linguistic ability that people have, who are linguists. And, and the same thing with prophecy, right? In the New Testament, did you have people that got prophecy from God? Well, yeah, right? They were prophets. Do you have prophets today? Well, there's prophets in the sense that they preach the scripture, but they're not getting direct revelation from God. The miraculous component is no longer operative, but... The prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is still there. But we've we've talked about that a lot. A lot but mm -hmm. is it? I mean, you're is saying it true, is, it, is it? No, is it true as we approach the end times that we're going to see signs, new signs? I don't think we're going to see signs like you have here. I don't. I don't think there is. I don't see the. And if they were, they would be a valid, demonstrable. Thing. And that's not what you see today. That's that's not what you see. We know about charlatans, but the yeah. people who genuinely believe in tongues have had, and I know it's not to be based on experience, but they've had experience where the men were speaking in tongues, and one was interpreting, and it was at a time of renewal in their church, and many people were saved at the time. That's the people who have, who, yeah. who will insist that tongues exist because of what they experience in that. And, and all I'm saying is the danger with that is you can't base your theology on your experience. You, you can't do it. You can't. I think it's not, you know, the Bible says it's dangerous to do that. Actually, you know. when I read the John Piper, uh, the book, that Acts is a historical, New Testament historical book. Yeah. That the tongue is the temporary tool. Yeah. Temporary given to disciples tool to evangelical 
Yeah, it was it was the forging to church. Yeah, that they use the tool, and then uh, he said, "All with God's revelation already made it here." Yeah. So without this, that that's the heresy. Yeah, and it, already already God gave it to us here, right? Yeah, here. this is so what we, we have. Need a we don't need to any miracle. Well, that's what Peter. That's why we're looking for what context, what text to say. Mm -hmm. We find out where is it. Yeah, that's the goal. That's the our Christian. And see, that's what Peter said when he's yeah, saying in, in Second Peter, I had an experience. I had an experience only three other two other people in history have ever had. I saw the risen, you know, glorified Christ on the mount. I heard God talk to him. I saw Moses and Elijah standing there of all people and. I mean that was a that was a wow experience, but he says you know it's better to have the written word. Yeah. It's better to have that because experiences are subjective. Yeah, the written the, word. In the Cleveland uh, 11, 12 Korean church there, and one church, the one uh, ministry, associate minister, he's learned from the. Theology school, Korean theology school in, in Los Angeles, not the validate mm -hmm. the school, not that government uh, mm -hmm. approve it. You know, some Korean people are yeah. the school. They put it aside. This is mm -hmm. the school, you know, divine school. And he he finished over there two years, and then he come over here. He said he tried to right now. He gonna make a new church. He gonna build a new church, and then he, the next lady always sit down. He's Tom. The lady come out to tell me, I'm very surprised. He, I don't understand what he said. Mm -hmm. So I said, don't trust them. They show. Yeah. They show. It's very dangerous. Understand. Yeah. Still, they kind of die. Yeah. The thing to understand about God is that He wants you to know what He's saying. Yeah. He said He. Because that's God where you get. He said some revelation. That that's where that's where the benefit comes to you is you understand God engages your mind, your intellect, and you know what He's saying. And Isaiah said, "Come now, let us reason together," says the Lord. Let's talk this thing over. Um, God wants you to know what He says. He's not going to hide His truth, and He's not going to speak to you in a language that doesn't do you or anybody else any good, no matter how well you feel. It, 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 that's not the way God operates. And historically in the church, that's not the way it's operated. And historically in the first centuries, that's not what you had. The only blip you have in this whole tongues thing happened right around, like in the first century, and it was a group of heretics. There's the, called the Montanists who denied um, some of the basic theology, of, you know, like the deity of Christ and things like that. And they were led by two women who were supposedly the uh, two olive branches that you find in, in Zechariah. And uh, they, it was a heretical movement condemned by the church, condemned by the, the you know, the, the Orthodox Church. The women, they go to the It just happened that it yeah, was, yeah. that's who They're it was. Do it in the daytime. Yeah. It so was, they go to the mountain, they sit yeah. down and pray, pray, and just like a monk. But, you know, and, and, and when you look at, you know, when you say, well, you know, God's given me a prophecy. How do you know that's from God? How do you know God gave you that? Um, you know, what God gives us now is illumination. 
He's not giving us new revelation. Because I got a revelation from God. All right. I can't validate that. No one can validate that. Um, I remember um, Bill McCartney, who's founded Promise Keepers, goes to the Boulder Vineyard. And his pastor is uh, James Ryle, James C. Ryle. And uh, James C. Ryle told him he had a vision one time. that God gave him a vision of who's going to win the football game. Now, let's stop and think about but not too awfully long on this one. Is God going to give prophecies on who's going to win football games? Maybe Ohio State. Come on, folks. <laughs> you know. I mean. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, that's he got it from a demon, though. There he thinks it was from God. But but the whole problem is God. God is not. We've turned. Let me if you think about this, if you're the average unbeliever. Pretend you're an unbeliever and all you know about Christianity is what you see on television. What would you conclude about Christianity? They don't have any theology. They're nut jobs. No They're crazy. No, I'm just saying if you look at if you look at what if you look at what passes for Christianity on the television, what do you got? You got Benny Hinn slaying them in the spirit. You got Frederick Casey Price, you know, doing this. You got Morris Cirillo. You got, I mean, it's aberration. And and the more wild and more bizarre the behavior, the more supposedly godly it is. God is not the. What's it say here? God is not the author of confusion. Let all be done decently and in order. God is a God of order. God is not a God of chaos. And and when you when you fall into this mode that if the more bizarre, the more weird, the more outright outlandish the behavior, the more godly you are, you're 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 a sucker for deception. I see the TV uh, the, the sermon sometimes on Sunday. They don't have any theology sermon. No, they don't. They don't have any uh, context attacks. What's going on? Theology. What verse means? You listen. God is good. You're you're exactly right. Does anybody get on the TV other than maybe a Charles Stanley or somebody? Does anybody get on do an exegetical study of the Word of God? No, they don't. They talk from experiences. They talk from anecdotes. You know, it's all a a positive. God wants you to feel good, happy, and all this kind of thing. You know, can you imagine Jonathan Edwards getting on there preaching to sinners in the hands of an angry God? You know, his ratings would be five people in America watch the sermon. You know, nobody's going to watch that. If they turn the camera in the crowd, though, these churches are packed. Yeah. Because, yeah, and what it is is what you find in, in Timothy. It's easy to mail build big church. That's easy. Tell people what they want. You'll have the biggest church in town. Find out what people want to hear and tell them. And they'll, and they'll flock. They'll come to you. They'll come to you. I mean, it's this... You know, I, I don't mean to beat this horse to death here, but it's a real issue. You know, God wants us to know. He wants us to understand. Now, is there a mystical component to our faith? Absolutely. Is there an emotional component? Absolutely. Can you feel the presence of God at times? Yes. So I don't want to say, well, you know, being a Christian is just 100% mechanical. It's not. All right. But it's not bizarre behavior. It's not out of control behavior. And even when 
they were speaking in tongues in Acts 2, it was not out of control. They weren't frothing at the mouth, rolling on the ground. They were speaking languages that people could understand. Whenever we approach our stage of truth, can we, you know, just totally dismiss experiences and emotions? And doesn't God use those? God uses them, but they're always to be validated by the word of God. That's all I'm saying. They're always to be validated by that. And if you have an experience that makes you think or believe or act in a way contrary to the scripture, it's a bad experience. That's all I'm trying to get at. Okay, and that was the problem with Joseph Smith. You've got Moroni showing up, telling well, don't join any church because they're all wrong, they're all corrupt. And then you get this whole new theology of Mormonism that teaches things that the Bible doesn't mention anywhere in its pages. You're wrong. There's no, there's just, there's no way to put it. You're wrong. I think that you know, people, Christians, uh, own experiences used to interpret text or tongue find eventually uh, make mis, mis, uh, misinterpret right yes that's the, that's the result, right? yeah what you want to do is is when you study the word of God you've got a box of theology that you have and what what our problem is is we tend to view this is the Bible here it's not a very good copy of it I guess but we tend to th view the Bible through our little box of Theology, our preconceived, the sermons we've heard, the things, the notions we've had all our lives. What you need to do is you need to stop that. You need to look here first and then use this to determine your theology. And that's a very difficult and very tough and very hard thing to do because we all have preconceptions that we bring when we study the Word of God. We all have these little notions in there. And the hardest thing we need we can do as a believer, as a student of the Word of God, is understand what they are, set them aside. Don't get rid of them. Don't throw them away. But just recognize that they're there. What if you have some of the patterns? My church is from a charismatic Catholic church. Charismatic Catholic church, charismatic uh, movement happened in the 70s, like John said. A church branched out of that. It was a husband and wife. They were doing prayer meetings. Came to the priest, <clears throat> asked the priest about a lot of the things that were going on in the Catholic Church. They got filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God led them to continue to have prayer meetings. They didn't have no covering. They didn't have no education. They weren't taught. They just knew that the Spirit of God was moving them out of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. The first people that they come in fellowship with. It's, 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 it's Pentecostal. Pentecostal people encourage them, build them up. That was 1976. We get founded in the Word of God. We get taught the Word of God. We come up with, you know, the fathers, the fathers of our church. Um, they get strengthened. Um, I tell them in 1991, I get saved. The church is at 75. The church is a thriving, growing church. We've got the same pastor. 15 years, um, we have a solid uh, fundamental doctrine, we believe, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but that's how our church started. Mm -hmm. So for me to say uh, a movement of God 
uh, when my church was founded that way, and it's established, many people have been saved, including myself, including my whole family, including thousands of people that I've witnessed to, mission trips, churches were planted, um, came out of a movement that would not sound ordinary. Mm-hmm. That would sound, you know, hey, you know, that, that was done away with. Well, why is it happening now? Why is it happening in 1970? Well, let's understand, I, I'm not saying that God does not do miracles or God does not work but, miraculously. But I think a lot of the extremism the extremism, yeah. A lot of the exaggeration, because I've been in services where things were very exaggerated and very mm-hmm. um, unorganized and very uh, wild. You know, well, you know, but to say something didn't happen in a way that no one could pinpoint it, no one could say, yeah, this was what we wanted to do. This is, I mean, our church has been established for 30 years and it's a growing, thriving. But what is but what is the foundation of your theology? Yeah, if your church is committed to the truth of the Word of God and what it says, wherever it came from, all right, God uses all kinds of means, right? Yeah, you know, and wherever it came from, the commitment is to the Word of God. And quite honestly, let me ask a question: Does anybody in here worship God one hundred percent accurately? None of us do. No matter what church you go to, right? There's some things that you probably that are probably not right. All right. So, so, so I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to invalidate ministries, okay? And that's fine. This is a non-denominational church here. All I'm challenging you all to do, you got to, you got to think this through. You, you know, this is not. You got to think it through. Putting them through the, you know, not lining your experience up your experience with the Bible, but really testing it, having your... Test it. That's that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Test your experiences with the Word of God. And and if there's a discrepancy between your experience and the Word of God, the Word of God wins. Sure. That's it. That's all. The problem is, in many churches and in many people's lives, when you throw your, your experience up against the Word of God and there's a discrepancy, your experience wins. And that's what I'm saying is bad. Right. But there's there's the danger of rejecting something out of the ordinary and, right. and new, um, just offhand. I mean, automatically rejecting it. You look at the history. The Pharisees, they were the Bible experts. Right. They knew everything about the Bible, and they had a preconceived notion about who the Messiah was, and they missed the sign. Absolutely. And that. And that's why that's why that's why there is undoubtedly a mystical component to our faith. There is. You cannot deny it. Okay, but that mystical experiential component is subject to the word of God. That's all. Okay, it's subject to the word of God. And as you look in the word of God, does God lead people in mysterious ways? Well, sure he does. That's not bizarre behavior, right? Every church you have a constitution. Yeah. Sometimes I agree with this. They have what they believe. That's the importance. Yeah, it's What's not fundamental. What they believe, you know, we believe only six truth, God's word. That's the my church foundation. That's it. Mm-hmm. But the different, you know, different uh, ritual cuttings, different ritual uh, style. You know, that's the people make it. Yeah. Yeah, but what we believe. So I saw, I see the constitution of the Moody Bible. Mm-hmm. 
I read it. I have read it. Okay. More than 50% is, uh, is Calvinism, they say. So they like Calvinism. So who made the Calvinism, the Lutheranism, Almanism? People make it. Yeah. That's, they that's students. Different way. But it's fundamental. Yeah. We believe in 66 books. That's it. And, and, and as students, as students of the scripture, we're always yeah. And and as students, we're always refining, right? We're always refining our beliefs, because 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 do you believe everything today that you did 20 years ago? No, you've grown in your faith, right? So there are things that that you've changed because you understand the Word of God a little better. The Word of God is our standard. It is the measuring stick. It is the source of divine truth. Our experiences are great when they line up with the word of God. They're wonderful. All right. But don't let your experience to define your theology. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Because when, somebody asked one of the people in the charismatic movement. Um, I forget which one it was. Um, who was it? It was... Um, I can't remember the name. It's slipped my mind. They said, well, what is your theology? They said, well, we don't know yet. We're cataloging all of our experiences to define it. Wow. Wow. You're defining your theology by your experience. I think they asked that to C. Peter Wagner, and that's his response was, well, we're, we're still cataloging all our experiences to know what our theology is going to be. Whoa, folks. You know, and, and here's the thing, you know, God wants, God does want us to feel the joy of the Lord, right? As Christians, we should feel joy. We should experience our Christianity. It is not a rote, mechanical, unfeeling, dead thing we have. It's living. It, it, it's meaningful. And there should be joy. There should be laughter. There should be a sense of, of, um, of peace in it. But that is derived from the scripture. It's derived from the word of God. All right. And, and beware of movements that elevate experience over the scripture where, where you don't want to study the word of God because we, that, that we have a better. We got we got a prophecy after this one that tells us something different. That's no better than the Mormons. And when you get into some of these charismatic churches where every time you turn around, somebody's got a new revelation or a new word from God, they're no different than the Mormons. They're no different than Mormonism. Because 90% of the time, whatever they get is in violation to this. And what do you know about God? God is consistent with himself. The scripture that he wrote in the earliest part of the Bible, Job, is perfectly consistent with the last book, Revelation. There are no inconsistencies in God's word. And whatever somebody would come up with today would have to be consistent with the word of God. And in most cases, it is not. You just check it out. Kenneth Copeland had God show up to him and tell him, I never claimed to be deity. I don't know where that came from. And then I asked my Mormon uh, friend, my friend, I, I, I explained, you know, this is a book. He said, who made it a He asked me. Mm hmm as people, he said, people make it, right? Same thing, he said. It is very hard. Right. This is a people make it, right? People, people believe. People believe what they want to believe. 
People believe what they want to believe. And that's why, you know, we need to understand that that the word of God is that which cracks our, you know, our, our, our lostness. And again, why do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Because God's granted you the faith to believe that. That's a that's a gift that he has given you. All right. Um, it comes from him. That's based in some verifiable facts and, and of history and things like that. But I believe the Bible is the word of God because God's granted me the faith to believe it. And he has validated it in my life. When the Bible tells me if you live this way, this will happen. And I live that way and it happens. That's a validator of the word of God. It comes out of here. Okay. Well, we better move on to Acts. Yeah, if we don't get into 1 Corinthians 15, we will be behind. All right. But but I think it was important just to finish these thoughts up. And, you know, you got to go study this all on your own. We all come from various backgrounds in here. Um, I just challenge you to, to think through the issues and to do some own, your own research, you know, and, and validate it to yourself. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is an interesting chapter. Um, it's one of those rare chapters in the Bible. And the reason it's rare is because rarely <laughs> do you find a single theology so deeply taught in one spot. If you want to find out anything about resurrection, this is the place to go. You don't have to go all over the scripture. Now, are there other places in scripture that talk about resurrection? Well, sure. But this is really the place to go to really understand it. And by the way, just so you understand, the resurrection is a necessary component of saving faith. All right. It's a necessary component. All right. And we're going to talk about this. Because it says here, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach to you, which you also received and which you stand by which you also saved. If you hold fast that word, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says, OK, you received the gospel. He's going to explain the gospel here in a minute. He said, you received the gospel. And it's that gospel that you believed and understand which saves you. But then he says, if you hold fast that word, which I preach to you. And some say, oh, boy, you know, I guess, um, you know, I've got to do something. I've got to hang on. All right. Um, this is one of those paradoxical um, things that the scripture talks about. And what do we mean by paradox? Well, there's an apparent contradiction, but there really isn't. Okay. If you come to Christ and you are truly born again, can you ever lose your salvation? No, you can't. You didn't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to unget it. All right. You say, well, I believed. Yeah, but why did you believe? Why did you believe? Because God gave you the faith to believe. Now, understand, we all believed in here, right? There was a time when we all made a commitment to Christ, when we all, you know, prayed that prayer, whatever. But from the eternal perspective, why did we pray that prayer? Because God granted us the faith to believe. All of a sudden, in all of our lives, one day the light just went on and we, oh, I get it. <laughs> I understand now what it is. And we believed. So we could never lose it. But from the external, from the, the point of an external observer, how do I know you have it? I don't see the E. I haven't. I haven't. I can't. I can't see the halo. 
All right. How do I know you have it? That's sort of like, you're close. You're closer than any of the rest of them so far. That's close. What's Paul say here? What's he say here in verse 2? If you what? If you hold fast to the word. How do I know externally that you're you're real? Because you're putting up with me. Because you hold fast. All right. What Paul is saying here is he's saying not your salvation is yours if you hold fast. What he's saying is your salvation is real and genuine because you hold fast. Do you think people believe in vain? Sure it does. What parable did Christ talk about? My wife. What parable, remember? Soils, right? What happened? Well, soil, soil went out to soil. He threw the seed and some fell on hard ground. Nothing happened, right? There are people that you preach to and you might as well talk to a telephone pole, right? Nothing happens. They're hard. And then some fell um, on the stony ground. What happened? Up it goes, right? And you think, wow, you know, that it's great. It's wonderful. But what happens when the sun comes out? Dries up. And then some fell among weeds, right? And it grows up. And then what happens? It's choked out. But then some falls on good soil. And what does it bring forth? Fruit. Which soil talks about true believers? The good soil. That's the only soil. And Christ even explains, so there's some that, that hear the word of God and they receive it supposedly with joy and they're, wow, you know, and they're running down the aisle and they're bawling and they say, wow, you know, look at that person, they're converted. And then two years later, you know, they're a Buddhist. Or they're not even in church at all. And they gave up on God. Were they truly born again? No. What did they do? They believed in vain. From the human perspective, there are people that look like they believe, they act like they believe, but they, they really believe. No. Acts chapter 8. What about Simon Magus? Philip comes, preaches the gospel. People get saved. Simon Magus walks down the aisle. He signs the card. He prays the prayer. He joins the church. And then Peter shows up and the power of the Holy Spirit comes. And the first thing he does is pull out his wallet to try and buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, you don't have any part in this. And you better pray that maybe God would grant you repentance. What is the, how do you interpret that theologically? Well, you don't unless you're a Calvinist. I'm making a joke. The first thing she did when she went to church was they told her before she could join, she had to give her W-2, you know, show her W-2 for the company. So they really aren't trying to preach the word. They're too busy after money. They got a bad theology of giving, which we're going to talk about here in the next chapter. If the first, if the first thing you're concerned about is money. You've got some problems. Go don't go there. I wouldn't so go, I, there. go there. I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't go there. Always the heretic church and heretic people always is first thing talking about money. Yeah. The second thing is personal. Personal. You have to follow me. Yeah. That's yeah, that's a cult. 
It's called a cult. You put some church people and say that, that's the heresy. Yeah. Now, now what you see here, so the point of Paul's making it too, it's not, you get saved if you hold on, and if you don't hold on, you lose your salvation. He's saying if you don't hold on, you've never had it. And that's borne out in 1 John chapter 2, where it talks about they went out from us because they weren't of us. And it's, it's borne out throughout Scripture. Judas, did Judas look like he was one of the 12? Yeah. All the other 11 did. <laughs> they thought he was in, right? Mm -hmm. Was he ever in? No. No. He was never a believer. Was Simon Magus, was he ever in? No, he was never a believer. All right? And that's what Paul's talking about here. And he says, for I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received. And this is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So what is the gospel? Okay? And some people have said, well, the gospel is... Um, believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. That's, that's what the gospel is. And if you believe those facts, you're in. All right? Well, let me ask a question to C. Lee. Do Mormons believe that? You mean I believe Mormons? Do Mormons believe that? No, no. Do they believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again? Oh, I think they, they do. Yeah, they do. I know they do. Yeah. Are they Christians? No, they're not. Here's the point that I, that I need to make here. It's not the rote facts. It is the meaning behind the facts, right? It says here, Jesus says here, Christ died for our sins. So the questions you have to ask is, okay, why was he able to die for my sins and no one else able to die for my sins? That hints at that, well, there's something different about him that's not the same as some other man, which lends, which leads you into the virgin birth, which leads you into the sinlessness of Christ, which leads you into the fact that he is different. There's more, see, there's more than just believing that Jesus died for your sins. There needs to be a comprehension of why did he die? What was the need for him to die? Why did he have to die? And what makes his death different than some other person's death? There's a lot of theology wrapped up in that little statement that he died for our sins according to the scripture. Now, if it says he died for our sins, what else does that imply? I have sins. And what implication does that have? I'm separated from God. And Jesus died for me would imply what? I can't do anything about my sin problem. The point is the point I'm trying to make here is that there there needs to be a comprehension of a certain body of truth for salvation to happen. You gotta really think on this one here, all right? You gotta think about this. That's really circular. Christ died for my sins because nobody else could have died from my sins and then been raised because he's the only one. And where do you find that? Where do you find out the implications and the theology behind Christ dying for my sins from the scriptures? The scripture is talking about the the, right? the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Yeah. They don't have any. Uh, 
Well, some of the books of the New Testament are written, but the gospel is still... Yeah, well, if you look at the Old Testament, what do you know? What do you know about the Old Testament? You know that men are sinners, right? You know that, you know, if anything, in the Old Testament, with the sacrificial system, God is saying, the Old Testament can boil down to this. I'm holy, you're not. Stay away from me. I mean, that's really what God is trying to get at. I'm holy, you aren't. You stay away. And if you come to me, this is how you're going to come to me. You're going to come this way. You're going to do this, this, and this. And if you don't, you're dead. All right. God was trying to make a point, And that was all understandable from reading and understanding the Old Testament. The point that Paul is making here is that there is a theology that goes beyond the mere fact of Jesus dying for my sins. You have to say, why did he die? What was the necessity for his death? Why was his death different? What made him different than the average person? That's that's the heart of the gospel. And then it says he was buried. What does that tell you? That he was really dead, dead, in spite of what these people want to say. He was dead, all right? He was really dead, because the only way the Roman soldiers would turn the body over for burial is if he was really dead, because if he was not really dead, you took his place. You made sure, as a Roman soldier, if you had orders to execute somebody, you made sure they were dead. Because if they weren't really dead and they walked out or got away, you took the sentence on yourself. All right. And then it says he rose again. Now, why is that important? It's a validator of what he said, right? It's a validator. And and what does it say? It's just, it's interesting. In Romans, it says Jesus Christ was declared to be the son of son of David and the son of God. How is he declared to be the son of God? What separated Christ from every other human being on the planet? He rose again. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4. Declared, there's an interesting word, horizo. We get horizon from it. It means, what, what was the line? What was the thing that separated Christ from everything else? He rose again. He rose again. Was Christ fully man? Absolutely. He died. Was he fully God? Absolutely. He rose again. If you know anything about anything, you can you can find probably dozens of families in those days where those, those were common names. It has nothing to do with I know because because unregenerate man does not want to believe they will find any possible excuse on the planet to disregard the word of God. They'll find any excuse possible. Yeah, right. Suppose they found a box, uh, ossuary boxes of the bones of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. They keep linking Mary with him somehow. Yeah, and that's the true tomb of Jesus and all this stuff, you know. Yeah. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. To, to tell them. Tell, tell them he's he not raised up. Yeah. You know? And see, as. That's what they're hiding. His yeah. Theology, you know? And we don't have time to really explore this. There are books that, that are written on this. Josh McDowell's done a good book on this, on the resurrection. The resurrection is, the most valid, is one of the most easily validated facts of history possible. And if you read the Gospels, you find so many evidences for it. 
You know, for example, the Pharisees hated Christ. How could they have killed Christianity before it got off the ground? Here's the body. He's dead. What do you mean he rose again? There it is, right there. There's no body. They could have killed that right off, right? The whole point is, is validated historically. And why is it so important that Christ rose again from the dead? Because it validated his message. What did his message mean? Eternal life. Well, if you want to have eternal life, what do you need to get rid of? Death. All right. And that's why it's, here's the point, folks. And, and Paul makes this point here. If you do not believe the resurrection, if you deny the resurrection, you can't be saved. Now, now let's, I just want to explore this just a little bit, and then we'll, there are certain facts that you need in order to become a Christian. There are certain things you need to know, right? You do not become a Christian and wind up in heaven, and God said, well, you're here, and say, well, what would I do? Well, you believe. What did I believe? I don't know. Why am I here? What's going on? There's a set of facts that you believe. Jesus died for your sins. You're a sinner. You're under divine judgment. You can't save yourself. Jesus paid the penalty. If you accept his payment for your sin and ask him for forgiveness, you are given eternal life. He died. He was buried. He rose again. Because he rose again, you will rise again. Someday you will have a resurrection yourself. Those are all facts that we believe. Okay? And those are all necessary facts. You can't omit those and have somebody be a Christian. And here's the other point. Do you understand, does anybody, when you came to Christ, stop and think about it. When you all came to Christ, did you understand all the theology behind all of that? No, and you still don't. You still don't. But did you deny anything? No, you did not. One of the problems with Jehovah Witnesses sees, they'll say, well, you know, Jesus died, but he rose again in spirit form. Well, you know what? This passage here says spirit's not good enough. He rose again physically. And why is the physical resurrection so important? Well, again, what's, what are the, what's the overriding, overarching th philosophy of the day? Yeah. Dualism, right? What's dualism? Matter, evil, spirit, good. There's no way you're going to have a resurrection because matter is evil. Why would you want to be resurrected in evil matter? And it's necessary, and that's 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 really why Paul wrote this passage. Because what were what were the Corinthian believers influenced by? They were influenced by the philosophy of the day, and the thing they were struggling with is the resurrection. How? Why would anybody, when they finally get rid of this this body that slows them down, why would they ever want to take it up again in a resurrection? They were struggling with that, and Paul had to write this answer. But the point is there's a certain set of facts that we need to believe and affirm in order to be saved. We may not know all the implications of it. We may not understand all the, and, and, and quite honestly, we, we won't this side of glory understand it all. But we won't reject it. We won't say it's not true. I, I, won't, I won't come to Christ and say, well, he was just a nice guy, but he wasn't really virgin born, and he wasn't sinless, but if I believe in him, I can be saved. Wait a minute, you got to... You, you can't do that. All right. You can't deny that. If you deny Christ's deity, you can't be a Christian, period. So when Kenneth Copeland, who's one of these guys, stands up and says, Jesus visited me last night and told me that he did not claim to be divine. How do you assess that? It wasn't Jesus that showed up 
he must have had too much pizza and beer or whatever it is he ate. And he's not a Christian because you can't deny the deity of Christ and be a Christian. You can't do it. It won't work. And that's one of the difficulties when I talk to my Mormon friends and I say, do you believe Jesus is God? Yeah, he's a God. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, they mean that he is the son of Elohim and one of his many celestial wives. He's a, he is deity in that sense. He's not deity in the deity sense, but he's a deity in their sense. And you say, well, is he the son of God? And they say, absolutely he is. But what they mean by son of God is a whole lot different than what we mean by the son of God. All right. And if you ask them, is he divine? They will say, absolutely, he's divine. But what they mean by him being divine is a whole lot different than what we mean and what the Bible means about him being divine. And the point is, you got to go back to the biblical definition. The same thing with the Jehovah Witnesses. Do they believe Jesus is divine? Sure, but their divinity is different than biblical divinity. All right. You got to go back and say, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, I once taught a, a lesson. Jesus who? People say, I believe in Jesus. Which one do you believe in? Jesus who? There's a Jesus in the Bible. There's a Jesus of Mormonism. There's a Jesus of the New Age. There's a Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses. There's another one of every cult on the planet. Which Jesus do you believe in? If you get the wrong one, you don't go to heaven. And that's what Paul is saying. What, what Jesus do you have to believe in? What's he say here in verse 3? Twice. And actually says it twice in once at the end of verse three and once at the end of verse four. Which Jesus do you believe in? The one according to what? The scripture. That's the one you believe in. If you don't believe in that one, you don't believe in him. You've got the wrong one. All right. This is the one you need to believe in. So don't let the Jehovah Witness or the don't let the Mormons come along and say, well, you know, Joseph Smith sorted the whole deity of Jesus out by his additional revelation. Don't listen to that. Because that's not the Jesus of the scripture. That's the wrong Jesus. And they have a tremendous amount of devotion to him, but it's not the right one. You can get the wrong Jesus. And by the way, you know, the Bible talks about antichrist. Anti, that little word anti, can have two different meanings. It can mean against. We think about that antibody. But the other sense in the Greek text is not against, but instead of. You've got a lot of instead of Jesus out there. People who, who are not against Jesus, but they're just not the right one. All right. You've got to get the right Jesus, folks. And the right Jesus is the Jesus you find in the scripture. And that's what Paul is saying. You make sure you get the right one, because if you don't. You're not saved. You're not saved. In verse five, he said he was seen by Cephas. Who's that? Peter. The twelve, the other disciples. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain at the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James. Who's James? Half brother of Christ. Then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul says, I even saw him. What's Paul trying to say here? We have a lot of eyewitnesses. In fact, a lot of them are still alive. You can go ask them. Now, one of the screwball things, they say, well, this is just a mass hallucination. 500 at once. 500 people at once saw the same thing. And it's all a mass hallucination. That doesn't make any sense. 
And not only that, but when Jesus showed up, was he a glorified ghost? What did he tell Thomas? Touch. 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 You don't touch ghosts, right? Which meant Christ had a physical form of some kind. He told her, don't cling to me. The word there, touch, is not touch. The word there means hapto, means to grab onto, to hold onto, to, to want to keep. And he's saying, Mary, you can't keep me because I'm going to go to my father. You can't have me. You can't hold on to me. I've got to go. That's what he was telling her. Hapto is the word, the Greek word. It's H-A-P-T-O, it means to glue onto. It's the same thing. It's good that a man not touch a woman. What does that mean? I'm not allowed to touch a woman. No, it's hapto. He, he's using it in that sense to be glued to, to be married to. And that was the First Corinthians 7 passage we talked about. Okay? Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.